Welcome to the Mercy Commons podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We trust that the Word of God encourages you and that the Holy Spirit empowers you. This is James. He's going to be reading the scripture for this morning. Because it's also from James. Oh, I know. They missed that. You should probably do that again. There we go. Okay. Can you guys hear me? No? Yeah, okay kind of like how this feels. <laughs> All right, so it's James chapter 2, verses uh, 14 through 26. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you say to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that... Oops. You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Thanks, Brian. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for your word. I want to thank you that you've given us the gift of, uh, of what it means to be able to respond to you in the great gift of salvation. That in your word is the power to change someone from death to life. That in your word is encouragement. In your word is comfort. In your word is direction. I pray this morning as we posture ourselves under your word and uh, as we read something that for some of us is, is quite well known. I want to pray, God, that, um, that we would not allow familiarity to breed contempt. I want to pray, Spirit of God, uh, that you would move amongst us, that you would empower me, anoint me to be faithful to your word, that you would enable the rest of this community to be attentive to what the Spirit is doing in their hearts. I want to thank you that your word is activated by the power of your spirit. And so I pray for that as we look at this passage. We are, we are currently going through a series in the book of James. And, um, and because the, uh, the book of James doesn't really have a uh, necessarily very defined beginning, middle, and end, uh, because Dan, you preached last week, we're going to be looking at the passage of chapter 2, verse 14 to 26. Sean will cover uh, verse 1 to 13 next week, and then the hottest lady in Mercy Commons will be doing chapter 3. 
That's Karn, Neil, just so you knew, okay. First, first thing we need to do is, is talk about the elephant in the room. It's kind of a weird saying, right? I want to know where that came from. Like, let's talk about the elephant in the room. What that generally means is, um, let's talk about the very obvious thing that people are, are trying to ignore. And that seems to be the contradiction in the scriptures with regards to faith and works. There's a couple of things we've got to come to terms with when it comes to the book of James. And the first is this, and this is by way of reminder as, as we've preached at the beginning of this. The book of James is not a book that is designed to help people come to faith or what it means to maintain faith. It is a book that is designed to help people understand, are they living as a faithful follower of Christ? So when we look at it, it's important to be able to understand that this is not a book about how to gain salvation. This is not a book about how, how to become a Christian, but this is a book about what a faithful follower of the way of Jesus looks like. It's also important because some of you may think, okay, well, I've read Paul's writings and specifically in Romans, and this sounds counter to what I've read, or it sounds counter to what some of the preachers even here at Mercy Commons have been saying, uh, because the good news, the gospel is called good news, and the only thing that we do with good news is believe it. That's what you do with good news. And so how is this, how am I supposed to deal with what looks like a contradiction? So Two historical things that are important. Number one, the book of James is not a rebuttal against Paul's theology of being saved by faith and grace alone. There's two reasons for that. One, because theologically it is consistent with what Paul says about faith and grace alone. But secondly, historically, it's almost impossible because James was one of the very first books that were written. Um, and Romans was a book that Paul wrote much later on. So it's both historically and theologically incorrect. Both James and Jesus align themselves with faith and works. John the baptizer tells people that they are to bear fruit worthy of repentance. Jesus is emphatic in the Sermon on the Mount, where in Matthew 7, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only one who does the will of my Father in heaven. He continues and he says, Not every healthy tree will bear good fruit, but the diseased tree, sorry, every healthy tree bears good fruit, but a diseased tree bears bad fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. There is parable after parable where Jesus talks about people's behavior, their treatment of money, their treatment of the poor, treatment of their body, and excludes them from the kingdom to come. Paul, uh, an apostle of Jesus Christ who wrote many of the letters to the churches, always starts with this, always starts with our status, our free gift of grace, our free gift of faith given to us, and then tells us that because our lives have been shaped by Jesus, that this is what our moral, economic, sexual lives should look like because that is an indicator of salvation. And so this morning, there's an overriding feature that I want to say that the entirety of the New Testament teaches us that we are justified by grace and faith alone and that the seed of true faith flowers in us to produce the fruit of good works. I'm going to say that again. The entire New Testament teaches that we are justified by grace and faith alone and that the seed of true faith flowers in the believer to produce the fruit of good works. So what is James doing in these 14 verses? 
Well, he's doing three things. He's warning us against dead faith. He's warning us against demonic faith. And he's, us, he's encouraging us towards a demonstrative faith. Now, last week, uh, Daniel was here and he was preaching heresy about becoming a vegan, right? <laughs> so he was all leading you astray in terms of the idea of, of saying no to meat. Now, many of you know will know that I am a happy savage. I really really enjoy meat. And if I were to say to you, I've become a vegan, what would you think? Okay, you, you probably would maybe kind of want to believe me, but you'd maybe want to see some evidence of the change in belief. So, for example, I follow on Instagram a number of very important and critical uh, people. One of them is called Salt Lick Barbecue. The other one is called Happy Savage. The other one, are the, there's a whole bunch of accounts that I follow in terms of smoking meat. If I were to become a vegan, I would have to do what? Unfollow those and maybe follow, like, eat this, it tastes like cardboard, you know? <laughs> the, different things like that, you know? I have a grill and a smoker. And if I became a vegan, what would I have to do? I'd have to probably get rid of the grill and smoker because as much as you guys might think that grilled tofu tastes the same as meat, it only tastes the same as meat because you've grilled it on something that had meat on there. So the meat juices are what makes tofu better. I'd have to change the way that I shopped. I wouldn't be able to shop at a butcher anymore. I'd have to change the way that I, that I eat. And a lot of these things would help you determine this is actually real. He isn't just saying that is something, but his behavior, what he finds to be important, what he spends money on, the way he handles different things is changing. And that's what makes me believe that he's become a vegan. And so James is helping us understand when you say you have faith, there are a number of indicators that show that you have faith. It's not those indicators that make you a Christ follower. James is saying in verse 17, So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from works, and I will show you my faith by my works. For as the body apart from the Spirit is dead, so faith apart from works is dead. This is a bold statement. You know, he's, he's not just saying that your faith is weak or that your faith, your faith is feeble or, or that it's even pathetic. He's saying there is no life or purpose to your faith if it is not accompanied by works. And so what happens is, as a follower of Jesus, we choose to defend ourselves with these truths. And these are truths. They are true. So, for example, God cannot love me more or less regardless of what I do. That is a truth in Scripture. Our salvation was accomplished by Him, and we live our Christian lives through Him in the context of the Holy Spirit, or the Holy Spirit empowers us to do that, and I am never in danger of losing that salvation. I can't lose something that I never had anything to do with gaining in the first place. But this is the challenge. If I am defending either my idleness in the context of my faith or the fact that my behaviors are not in line with the gospel, deep down that shows me that I should be living a more fruitful and fulfilling life that is budding with the fruit of salvation. 
If I'm living a life that James is telling us that we should live, if my faith is alive, then there isn't a reason that I need to rebut with the constant reassurances of New Testament Christianity. What I've realized when it comes to our faith being made alive by our works is we have kind of dog-cat theology. Now, a dog theology is what I would call the neurotic, and a cat theology is what I would call the narcissist. Okay? Now, you guys know that when you have a dog, the dog is by far the best, but, but the dog will come home, you'll come home, and the dog will say, he won't actually say this. I mean, if a dog actually says this, then I really would like to see this dog, you know? But the dog comes home, and basically, this is what I can imagine. Did you miss me? Did you miss me? I missed you. Where were you? It took you a long time. Did I do a good job? I watched the house. No one came in. Well, for a second, there was a squirrel, but then I came back. Did you miss me? Did you miss me? Why are you not talking to me? What's happening? Are you upset with me? Did I do something wrong? Right? That's the dog right? That's the, that's the neurotic response to the gospel. You then, you have the cat, right? And when you walk into the house with a cat, the cat says, welcome to my home. You're late. Where is my food? I have an expectation of service and you are not meeting that expectation. And so the idea of the way in which we respond to the free gift of grace can fall into a dog or a cat theology. So the neurotic says this, God has legally justified me, and I'm privileged to be his co-worker. That's, that's dog theology. God has legally justified me. Now, these are all truths, guys. This is why we, we have to be in a place of being able to manage these truths in tension. God has legally justified me. He's taken care of the issue of sin, and so I am his co-worker. The way in which the, the kind of neurotics amongst us respond is, if I sin, then I feel disqualified. And if I feel disqualified, then the way that I make up for my sin is that I perform a lot of good works in order to make up for the gap with regards to my sinfulness, I perform good works. I don't really believe that God's affection rests on me simply because I am his child. And even the fact that I'm his child is something difficult for me to wrap my mind around. The busier I am for God, the more connected I feel to God. Basically, the neurotic is trying to earn something that is free. And I have to say this, in the context of our culture, this is quite rare. It still happens, but kind of the neurotic dog theology is more rare than the cat theology, which is this. I've been lovingly adopted as a child of God, and I revel in that identity. It's all true. I understand what it means to be a son and daughter of the living God. But when taken to the extreme, it looks like this. When I sin, I don't obsess about it because God will forgive me. Nobody's perfect. And so the reality is that sin cannot separate me from God. I just, I bask in that reality. I will not allow need or request to manipulate me into action. I will automatically reject conviction and challenge because it's trying to crush or conform me. I don't have to do anything. So I end up not doing much. I see rhythms as restrictive 
and I resist them because God has brought me freedom. I don't value the gift of grace that is, co- that is free but actually costs Jesus everything. As a narcissist or neurotic, I can be guilty of these statements. I believe that God is holy, but I don't pursue holiness. I believe that God is close to the poor, but I either ignore them or I don't know how to handle them, and so I just avoid them. I believe that God is generous, but I'm stingy. I believe that God has forgiven me, but others need to prove their repentance to me. I believe that the family of God is precious, that Jesus is the head of the body, his church, but I don't prioritize it, and I malign it, gossip, and hurt it. So all of these are statements where we can say we are one thing, and yet the way in which we respond maybe challenges the deep reality of whether that is true. Faith without action, faith without rest, faith without risk, faith without discomfort, and faith without joy is not true faith. Faith without action, faith without risk, faith faith without rest, faith without discomfort, and faith without joy is not true faith. When you think of the four pillars of what we talk about in Mercy Commons is that we revel in the mercy of God. Now, how do we know that we're reveling in the mercy of God? It's by the fact that we worship, by the fact that we pray, by the fact that we enjoy God and we enjoy each other, that we proclaim. So we revel in the mercies of God. We proclaim the mercies of God. How do we know that we're doing that? Well, we actually speak of the good news of Jesus Christ. We tell people of the good news of the gospel. We demonstrate the mercies of God. Well, how do we do that? The way in which we behave, the way in which we think, the way in which we act, the way in which we gather, the way in which we spend our money, it, it's all consistent with being a follower of Jesus Christ. And the way in which we participate in acts of mercy for the common good, the way in which we help the poor, the way in which we engage in our city, the way in which we stand up for righteousness and stand against injustice, these pillars are all works motivated by faith. The faith that we did not attain and therefore can't maintain, but a faith that we can make beautiful to those around us by the way in which it looks. James goes on to then say, um, there is a dead faith and there is a demonic faith. Verse 19 says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder or tremble. Now, vague belief is not just dead, it's demonic. Now, this is a pretty serious thing that James is saying. Now, demons are spiritual beings, and how many of you have had conversations, or maybe you've even said something in the context of this, well, I'm spiritual. Well, demons are spiritual too. Just because you're spiritual doesn't make you a follower of Jesus. Well, what did the demons believe? Well, they believed in the existence of God. They weren't atheists, and they weren't agnostics. They believed that God existed. What else did the demons believe? They believed that Jesus was the Son of God. How do we know this? Because this is what they would say when they were confronted with Jesus. They believed in a place of punishment because we know this because they said to Jesus, don't don't send us there just yet. We understand that that is ultimately where we'll be, but they believed in a place of punishment. In fact, we, we read throughout the Gospels that demons had a greater intellectual grasp 
of who Jesus, the Son of God, was than the disciples. Jesus was often telling his disciples and trying to get them to understand who he was, but the demons understood all of these things about Jesus. Were they followers of Jesus? Did they have true faith in Jesus? No. Why? Because of this. Claiming belief without affection or submission is demonic. I'm not saying that. James is saying that. And by definition, I'm saying that. Claiming belief without affection for Jesus or submission to him is demonic. It's not just dead, it's demonic. It is the opposite of true faith. Finally, James tells us what a demonstrative faith looks like. Verse 14, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things they need to the, for the body, what good is that? Now, what's important here is that the work does not save you, but it has the power to open the heart of the person that is receiving your work to bring salvation to another. So what if we were to read it this way, and this is what some commentators have done to help us understand this concept. What if the him that is in question is the person that is going to receive salvation? So let's read it again. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him, the brother who needs something? Not necessarily the brother who's giving someone. Are you tracking with me in this? Ultimately, what we're saying is that your faith is alive. A faith that is alive, spiritual and active, is when it's exercised on behalf of other people. So, for example, there's the sense of saying, some people are saying, well, you're not a Christian unless you exercise works in this specific area. And what I'm saying is that when you exercise works in a specific area, when it comes to mercy and justice and kindness and giving to the poor, what you do is you open the door for that person to receive salvation more than that. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things they need, what good is that? So there, there is the sense of I am meeting a practical need, We've spoken about this with neighbors, with friends, but I'm also actually saying the reason that I'm meeting this practical need is because I have received such grace, because I was poor and now I've been made a son and daughter of the living God, because, not, because I am, uh, not because I have to to prove something, but the faith that is alive in me is bearing this fruit that is showing to you this is what it means to live in a way that has been um, changed by the gospel. Our faith is alive and spiritual and active when it is exercised on behalf of others. So let's look at Abraham. Verse 21, was Abraham our father, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed or fulfilled by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled saying that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. This is uh, Genesis 15 verse 6 that Paul also quotes in Romans and uses it to show us that it is nothing other than faith and grace that saves us. You see that a person is justified 
by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messages, messengers and sent them out the other way. Now, who were Abraham and Rahab? So short story, Abraham, and some of you are saying too late. Abraham was the, considered the father of our faith. Not just the father of our faith, but Abraham was considered the father of the Jewish faith. We know that John agrees that Abraham was the father of faith. Jesus says the same thing, that Abraham was the father of faith. The problem was is that the Jewish nation looked at their lineage and heritage as that which was sufficient in order to bring them salvation. But what happened was Abraham was called by God out of grace, and God said to him, I want you to follow me, and I want you to go to a certain country. And Abraham believed God, and God gave Abraham these promises. And so the promise that is being referred to here in Scripture is that God said to Abraham, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. Now, Abraham was an old guy at that stage, married to an old lady at that stage. And the idea of actually having children was something that would not be accomplished unless it was supernatural. But Abraham chose to believe God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, the passage that is being talked about here in James is that once Abraham and Sarah eventually had the miracle of Isaac, God says to Abraham, now I want you to take Isaac and I want you to put him on an altar and I want you to sacrifice Isaac to me. So now this sounds dramatic. This sounds like, God, what, what are you doing? But ultimately what God is doing is he's helping Abraham and us to see that even though there were multiple ways in which Abraham had exercised his faith, he left his home where he had nowhere to go. He left his cousin Lot. He trusted God that he would have a baby. He even repented when he decided that he was going to take it into his own hands. But Abraham shows us and himself that he would not allow the gift and promise of God to become more important than obedience to God. One of the most critical things when it comes to faith and works is this idea that what God has promised us, the blessings, the kindness, the gifts of God, become more important to us than the one that gave them. This is what Neil refers to as idols. Actually, this is what all of Scripture refers to as idols. But this is what Neil mainly preaches on, and I'm super grateful for that. This is the idea that something that God has promised and given you becomes more important. And so an act, a work, is by Abraham saying that I am willing to give that up in order to have the one thing that I could not hold on to, which is the salvation that God gave me. That is what James is talking about here. Who is Rahab? Now, Rahab is a little more complex uh, because Rahab is called an innkeeper in one book and she's called a prostitute in another. Well, let's go with the fact that that's what she was. Uh, she was a Canaanite prostitute. And so what is the story about? Uh, when the Israelites came into the land that God was giving them, they came to the city of Jericho and there were spies and they ended up at Rahab's house. I'm sure for a drink and a meal and nothing else. But let's not go there. Too late. We went there. So why were they at Rahab's house? It's probably not as important as the fact that they were there. And the rest of the army was coming around looking for them. And so Rahab says, kind of paraphrase, she says, I know 
the God that you serve. I know that he is powerful, and I know that he has the ability to rescue. And so in that place, in, in, in that uh, moment, she placed her faith in Yahweh, the God of Israel, and she hid the spies. How many of you guys are old enough to remember um, kind of covering the story in Sunday school, right? Where Rahab rescued the spies and she hid them under hay and everything was cool. Were you ever taught that she was a prostitute? Were you ever taught anything like that? No. Why? Because it's, it's, it's kind of scandalous, right? But this is the thing. God's grace to us is scandalous. It does not matter what you've done. It does not matter what you've done. God's grace is able to rescue you from that moment. All you need to do is, God, I believe you are who you say you are. And that's what Rahab did in that moment. And she extended her faith on behalf of others. Abraham is called the father of many nations. We are the seed of Abraham. When Abraham exercised his faith in works, what happened is we benefited from that. What happened when Rahab exercised her faith? She rescued the spies and she rescued her family. And so there's the sense in which we are able to see that risky, meaningful action on behalf of others is what faith and works together in hand create. Who has God put in your life? Who is someone that just comes into your life and says, I need help? Who can we exercise faith on behalf of and have a massive impact in their life? I want to say I'm so grateful to the life groups and the life group leaders that have just taken the, um, the whole idea of serving some under-resourced families within the context of Richmond Elementary School. It's been amazing to see the impact that that has had on individual lives. It's been amazing to see how, the, how hearts have been opened to the gospel. We've had the privilege um, of being able to serve as a church. Uh, unfortunately, one of the moms or grandmas died of COVID and the kids did not have enough money for a funeral. And so we managed to put that kind of, um, we, we managed together as churches to be able to provide a funeral for her. Um, I've got a little thank you gift from the kids at uh, the Richmond Aftercare Center. It says, thank you so much for helping us learn when things were difficult. Uh, one of the reasons that we do those things is because of the grace that we've received. But another reason that we do that, those things is, be, is to be able to see the hearts of other people open to the gift of grace that God is offering. That we are actually performing these works, not because we're worried about losing our salvation, not because we're worried about proving something, but we want other people to taste of the goodness and kindness of our God. What is in our hand? What I love about this is that there's no partiality with God. James is all about, and, and uh, chapter 2, verse 1 to 14 says this, there is no partiality with God. In fact, James tells us in terms of the rich and the poor, and I love this because here you have the patriarch and the prostitute in one sentence that are declared righteous by God because they had faith in him and they performed a work to show that they had faith in God. Much like at the beginning when I was saying, I'm a vegan, and how do you know because this is what I do or don't do? This is what the patriarch and the prostitute did. 
There are many ways in which Abraham could be seen as superior to Rahab. And I, I love the fact that James, writing to a Jewish audience, would be able to say, and remember Abraham. And everyone would say, yes, we remember Abraham. Abraham is the father of our faith. And remember Rahab. And they're like, we don't talk about Rahab. That's a little awkward. Rahab is something we'd rather forget. Do you know where else Rahab is mentioned? She's mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus. So not only did her statement of faith that I believe that your God, Yahweh, is the God that can rescue and save affect her, affect the Israelites, affect the spies, but actually in Matthew it shows us that the grace of God was so present that he uses Someone that we would rather just kind of package away, much like those children's stories. There was a lady who ran an inn, and they came there, and they rented a room, you know, and, and we just like to sanitize it. She was in the genealogy of Jesus, one of the mothers of Jesus. Th that, for me, is the epitome of grace. You don't want someone like that in your family tree. You want it all nice and clean. We are descendants of Abraham. That's what the Jewish people would say to Jesus often. And John the Baptist and Jesus will say, God is able to make descendants come from these rocks. Male versus female, respected leader versus immoral prostitute, a pivotal player in the history of Jesus and a bit player, but actually both are exercising the gift of faith, adding it to works and making them the same. They take the idea that is sometimes this ethereal, smoky idea of God and ground it in a risky life situation. They choose to do that because they believe that God is who he says he is. Your works, my works, motivated by faith, can open the heart of someone else. It's not so much about getting saved. It's not so much about whether we can maintain our salvation. It's about how we revel, proclaim, demonstrate, and participate in the mercies of God. You know, Mercy Commons, if we have a faith that is alive, we'll be rescued from the neurotic or the narcissistic idea of what it means to be a Christian. If we have a faith that is experiential through the Holy Spirit, we won't just have this vague idea that God is one God because even the demons shudder. And even the demons tremble. We, we will know God, not through this idea of who he is, but through intimate knowledge through the Holy Spirit. A faith that exercises good works on behalf of others is something that God, through the Holy Spirit, is encouraging us to do. And I just want to say this in conclusion. When we look at James, we often look at the idea of how we treat those that are lesser than us, which is key and an important kind of subject matter of James, how we, how we deal with people that are poorer than us, how we deal with people outside of the community of God, inside the community. Remember, James is saying, if you see someone, a brother or sister, if someone is in your community, you have an obligation to, to help them. And oftentimes what we do with the book of James is we just, we, we just limit it to the idea of practical ways of serving and works. I want to say that, that a work of salvation that, that proves that you are a follower of God, much like what I said, if, if I'm a vegan, these are things that I do and don't do, is the act of forgiveness. And as I was, as I was preparing 
this week, I was thinking to myself, it's actually easier for me to engage in a very practical work of the gospel, like helping someone fix their car or giving some money to the poor or engaging in that, in that way, than the more difficult work of the gospel of forgiving someone, for example. And, and I, I think that forgiveness is one of the rarest commodities that we have just in our culture in general. I was talking to Sean and I was saying, the idea of forgiveness now is in the fact that I don't need to forgive someone if they were wrong, but they were wrong. I'm like, well, heck, but that, that's the root of forgiveness. The root of forgiveness is someone did wrong you. And, and we've done things incorrectly when we try and say, well, that wasn't so bad. Or that's not what the person meant. Or look at it from their side. And all those things are helpful. But it's not helpful if you're actually trying to use or um, apprehend the grace of forgiveness. You actually need to say, that person wronged me. I was hurt by that action. I was hurt by those words. I was hurt by that inaction. But because of the grace that I've received through Jesus Christ, I'm asking you, Holy Spirit, help me to forgive them. Help me to put my faith into action through the work of forgiveness. Jeremy, won't you come up here? I want us to do something that is maybe a little more difficult than asking you who you can be generous with your finances with. I want you to think about that. I want you to think about, is there someone within the context of my relationships that could benefit from my personal generosity? But I also want you to sit and think right now before I pray. Is there someone that I need to forgive? Now, I don't want you to do this. I don't want you to walk up to someone and say, I forgive you. Um, because that's a form of bondage because they don't know any of what has happened. If, if God, the Holy Spirit, is leading you to have a conversation with that person, that's great. But I'm talking about a heart transaction right now, faith accompanied by works, to actually be able to say, God, this person, through what they did or what they didn't do, directly or indirectly hurt me. And I am exercising faith and action by forgiving that person. Does that make sense? Can we do that? I want to pray for us and then reiterate those two things. One, I think, is the easier one. Is there someone that can benefit from my financial generosity? Is there a brother or sister that is poor or naked that, that has needs that I am able to actually help with? But secondly... Is there someone that I've kind of held at arm's length? And this person could be like a real person in the context of your relationships, or they can be a type of person. In other words, these X people, the them, the group that you have difficulty in dealing with, and, and saying, God, by your grace, help me to forgive them. Let me pray for us.
Father, I want to thank you. I want to thank you for the gift of faith and grace. I thank you that your scripture says that the faith that we exercised towards you in saying yes was a gift of grace. I want to thank you that like Rahab, it doesn't matter what we've done. Even like Abraham, if we've been trying to follow you and just making mistakes, but, but really been pursuing you and, and, and just messing up or wanting to see something come to pass and it hasn't come to pass, that, that God, we are still held in the grip of your grace. I want to thank you for those in this arena that have been um, transformed because you have rescued them. I also want to pray for those that are still seeking. Maybe those that, that are saying, I, I believe in God. I believe in this idea of who Jesus is. I, I even believe in the, the idea of an eternity, but I, I'm not sure that I can say that I love Him and am submitted to Him. I'm not sure that I can say I've tasted what rescue tastes like. Spirit of God, I pray that you'd move in those hearts. But for us right now, God, I want to pray in a very practical way. I want to pray that you'd bring to mind someone in the context of our sphere where we can exercise our faith towards them just in an area of financial generosity a neighbor, a worker, a friend. And I want to pray, God, that you'd protect us of thinking of people that are worthy of that. God, help us to do what you did, which is you gave. And we were not worthy to receive what you gave. God, I want to pray for those that have been wounded, those that have had people act against them in word, in deed. Spirit of God, I want to pray that because of the grace and mercy that we've received, we would take a step of faith and actually choose right now to offer forgiveness to that person or persons. Father, let us do what it says in James, let mercy triumph over judgment. Help us to understand we cannot call mercy on ourselves and judgment on others. Help us, Holy Spirit, apply the things we say we believe. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Commons podcast. If you enjoyed today's content, Please rate us and hit subscribe. And if you'd like to learn more about us, visit our website at mercycommons.church.